1: Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of ARK's FYI podcast. I'm Yasin and I cover cryptocurrencies at ARK Invest. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by none other than Nick Carter, partner and founder of Boston-based and Bitcoin-focused VC Castle Island Ventures, as well as the co-founder of CoinMetrics, one of the leading providers of crypto asset data and one of, if not my favorite research tool in the space. So welcome, Nick. Great to have you.
0: Thanks, Yasin. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. I love ARK Invest. <laughs> Thank you for having <laughs> so- me on. It is a privilege.
2: Thank you. It's. Uh, I mean, you probably know I, I draw a lot of inspiration from a lot of your work, so it's a privilege for you to be on here. I also do have to say that I did leave out one of your What you're most known for. What's your greatest accomplishment in the space is is obviously the the Bitcoin FUD dice
0: that you created. That was a classic. Yeah. So these were dice where kind of like Magic the Gathering dice. These ones said 12 sides. And it was a reaction to some of the hackneyed criticism that we see of Bitcoin in the mainstream media, you know, about being an environmental catastrophe, not being scalable, et cetera. So each side has a different critique of Bitcoin. And the joke is that you could reduce pundits to like a random generator of critiques. So, so I actually physically manufactured these dice and handed yeah, them out.
2: And I will say, one of my first projects at ARC was translating that dice into one that can be accessible on the internet, where you basically have an automated Bitcoin FUD dice, where you just clicked and it just randomized one of your uh, one of your FUDs.
0: Yeah, Yassin actually made a, he made a third party website devoted to these I, dice, which was pretty cool. I there, guess th-
2: that was at the time of uh, Nuriel Rubini when he was crypto famous. And telling everyone that how much he hated Bitcoin. And then if you look back at his tweets in, in 2013, when Bitcoin was trading at, you know, un- under hundred bucks. It was the same rhetoric.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like some of those early critics of Bitcoin, it's like you just wish they bought like 10 bucks worth. <laughs> and like, least. you know, instead of like writing all these missives about how it was terrible, because that would have just totally appeased them. They would have been good to go. After I know.
2: Do so you have an interesting history with ARC, one that predates my time? And so I, th- I think just starting off with that would be good for context as to how near and dear ARK really is to your heart.
0: Yeah. ARC is uh, intimately intertwined with my professional story, even though, you know, I never worked here or anything. So in two ways, actually. So when I was in uh, business school, uh, University of Edinburgh back in 2016, I cold emailed Chris Berniski, who at the time was the ARK uh, Bitcoin analyst. And I think I said something like, I love your paper on Bitcoin. He'd written, you know, he'd written a couple white papers on Bitcoin. One of them, which was really great, it was, you know, ringing the bell for new asset class, which is a great paper, which really held up pretty well. And, I was like, I think this is great. I think some of the data is wrong. Actually, <laughs> you push
2: back on even, the data. Even then, CoinMetrics that. Coin that wasn't a thing either,
0: right? Coin, well, CoinMetrics. Well, we'll get to that. Okay, we'll we'll get, get, to get to that. that. And so <laughs> yeah. Chris was like, "Yeah, why don't you like come to the office? Like, come say hi." And so I took the train, you know, from D- or took the bus from DC. I was back on Christmas break or something. Came to New York, and I'd actually I got the time zone wrong because I booked the meeting when I was in the UK. And so I was five hours late to the <laughs> meeting. So that's it's like pretty late, but <laughs> okay. Five hours late. I got an email from Chris like, Hey, are you like still coming? I was five <laughs> full five hours late. And uh, and it was fine. Like he he's you know, he's a very like chill guy. So and then I came to the Friday brainstorm session. You know, so, I met Kathy and Brett,
2: which we still have even after all these years. they
0: still do, yeah. so it was crazy because they just let you know my you know, yeah. like a basically a stranger like roll up to the session and like start brainstorming about Bitcoin and stuff. it was it was surreal, yeah and i I was a total unknown at this time. and then Chris took me aside after I've never told the story before, actually, mm-hmm. and he was like, yeah, Nick, like I'm gonna help you like make your way into the crypto industry. And keep in mind, at the time, I didn't realize there was. A professional industry in Bitcoin at all. I was interviewing for like investment banking jobs. And then I wrote my thesis, and you know, Chris actually kind of helped distribute it, my master's thesis. It was about crypto asset governance. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually introduced me to Matt Walsh, who hired me at Fidelity for the crypto analyst job. So that was, I joined Fidelity in 2017 uh, to awesome. be their dedicated crypto analyst. Thanks to Chris, really.
2: Well, shout out to Chris if you're listening to this, because my break into crypto, I will say it was also thanks to Chris, which is really funny. At the time, I was a junior in in college, and I was kind of a newbie to everything crypto related. And I recently had created a Twitter account and just followed the, kind of the the big Twitter accounts and slowly kind of started to read his stuff as well. And I, and I had reached out and I was able to kind of interview with Ark at the time when he had recently left. And... I think really the tipping point where I I kind of was able to, I would say, distinguish myself as a potential candidate was it was 11 p.m. on a night and I opened my Twitter feed and there's Chris that tweets that there's going to be a book signing tomorrow at 7 a.m. the next day and it's 11 p.m. and I'm in Philly and the book signing is in New York and he's like, come if you're available or if you're in town. And I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to get the job. I no got to go way. to that book signing. So you rolled up <laughs> so to I, a 7 a.m. So so book I signing. Lit- I literally booked my train ticket for 5 a.m. for the next day, go to the Barnes and Nobles on Fifth Avenue, and then introduce myself to Chris saying, like, you know, we've spoken. We had a, a chat. And that, that was the first time I also met Kathy. And then from there, like, the rest is history. But that was, uh, that was something where it's like, who knows? Had I never opened that Twitter feed, and had never gone to that book signing, we could have
0: could have written a different history. So wow, it, that's some next level <laughs> hustle right there. I don't know yeah. if I would have done that. 7 a.m. is also a very unsociable time to have a book signing. I know. And it was, was cold. It was like during the winter. It was freezing signing.
2: and we were waiting outside in line, but totally worth it. So th- I didn't tell you the
0: second part of yeah, the story either. Yeah, so tell me the second part. So Coinmetrics, which was a business that I am a co-founder of, I had been running it as a research project informally when I was still in, in college. school. Okay. In school, yeah and chris when i met him in the arc office you know back way back when he was like yeah i really like you know this notion of like nvt i don't even think it was named at that time it's basically a ratio comparing the the market cap of a cryptocurrency to the transactional usage with the intuition or the theory that there's some relation there maybe there's a stable ratio you know similar to like you might do a ratio analysis of an equity and at that time i decided to try and extend this ratio to other coins because I'd already been doing it for Ethereum and Bitcoin. So that was actually one of the main inspirations kind of the genesis of the coin metrics idea which later became a business, you know, basically commercializing crypto asset data in addition to also giving lots of it away for free. So Chris encouraged me to do that. So, you know, he really dramatically changed the outcome or my career in two ways.
2: That's awesome. So you then transitioned out of Coin Metrics. You're no longer doing any of the day-to-day operations, but you're kind of still part of it in some capacity? Well, I yeah. sit on the
0: board and okay. you know, I, I love network data, mm-hmm. so I still kind of advise them in that capacity.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. Now, we're, we're definitely seeing a, a massive gap being filled around being able to analyze this archaeology of data on these public networks. And I think, you know, Coinmetrics is doing an awesome job. I know with me, you know, I download the data files every couple of weeks, see if there's anything new that's changed, but definitely a growing need to actually look at the fundamentals. And feel like Coinmetrics is definitely at the forefront of that. So.
0: Well, I appreciate yeah. you saying that. I really <laughs> do think one of the most beautiful thing about public blockchains is their transparency. Mm-hmm. And with a little bit of work, you can find out All of the kind of macroeconomic relevant economic factors, you know, the equivalent of money velocity and GDP, and basically the equivalent of those macroeconomic variables, you can also look at them in the cryptocurrency world, even though it's still relatively primitive and we're still in the very early days of this analysis.
2: And that's what we often say. Like, I think one of Bitcoin's most underrated properties is its. Auditability totally, and and to then have a a platform by which you can explore just how auditable it is, you can find some real gold, pun intended.
0: Yeah, I mean the blockchain. You know, people say it's just a database. Well, it's a a massively replicated database, and I don't know if this is a bug or a feature. Some people consider it a bug because they prefer Bitcoin to be totally private. Right. But currently, it's not, and so you can see all the supply is sitting on exchanges and in the hands of traders and moving around merchants and it's my belief that uh, eventually if we do derive a way to you know value or you, you know price these crypto assets it'll be based on this on-chain data which is really the pulse of these assets and cuz you model them like these little mini economies you know I like that
2: i like that pulse so I know we decided to record this podcast on, on a, on short notice. So yeah. I gave uh,
0: seen about 24 hours, uh, less than yeah. 24 hours of notice. You're,
2: you're, I mean, so it wasn't actually that he messaged me saying he's going to be in New York. And I was like, great, let's do it. And then a few hours later, he's like, sorry, man, actually, I'm not going to be in New York, so I can't do it. And I was like, all right, well, next time you're in New York, we'll definitely have to record a podcast. <laughs> And then a few hours later, this guy's playing with my heart and he's like, no, actually, I'm going to be in New York. So finally, we're like, OK, let's do it. You're based in Boston. We're here in New York. This is the last second trip. This is also, I think, long overdue. So I'm, I'm definitely glad we're doing it, even if on short notice. There's a lot we can talk about. But in the spirit of how impromptu this meeting was, I basically just went through your recent tweets and found that one of them laid out four of your current obsessions. All right. And so I was like, perfect, let's talk about that. What are you currently obsessed with, Nick Carter?
0: Okay, (laughs) well, let me see. I am very interested in the kind of prehistory of digital cash. So all of those attempts to create digital cash that kind of failed, they came before Bitcoin. Because I really see Bitcoin as actually a culmination of many decades of effort, as opposed to lots of people treat it like this lightning strike from the blue that came out of nowhere and some people think of it as a very primitive system, think of it as the first of its kind. I actually think it's more appropriate to think of it as a culmination of a long, long process of experimentation and failure, you know, prior to Bitcoin.
2: I think a lot of people don't fully grasp this notion of Bitcoin being that culmination, something that like really when someone asks what Bitcoin's innovation is and I think why people take so much issue with this whole blockchain revolution is because it's like not in any of the single technological components that what makes bitcoin so innovative it's rather a combination of technological components that previously existed yeah. that, oh, that kind of didn't figure out a way to put the puzzle pieces together to ultimately breathe life into the system that we now call bitcoin but you know things like proof of work things like you know just digital signatures the public key cryptography all of these notions of kind of distributed trust systems existed. And there were failed attempts at creating forms of digital cash until kind of Satoshi came along and and figured out what the real solution was.
0: And at the time when Bitcoin was uh, conceptualized and, and issued to the world, most of the digital cash community was actually super disillusioned because they'd seen the failure of so many of these systems. So most of them, you know, many of them thought that it wasn't possible. This was just
2: another one
0: of those. I anyway, yeah. yeah, it was another kind of yeah. like, yeah, hack job kind of thing. But yeah, as you say, like the components of Bitcoin, most of those innovations were decades old. So, you know, proof of work traces back to a paper from 1992, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. The notion of public key cryptography traces back to the 70s. A lot of the peer-to-peer technology Bitcoin employs was popularized in the early 2000s. BitTorrent and so on. So it's just the particular configuration the way these things were all put together which is the brilliance of it.
2: And if you actually read the Bitcoin white paper, you'll see that that a lot of the predecessors albeit failed, they were cited in the bibliography as citations. You have things like DigiCash and HashCash. You have ways B money. Do you want to unpack any one of those that you find to be kind of particularly interesting or, or
0: relevant? Sure. So I think Digicash is mm-hmm. a really interesting case study because in some ways it's similar to Bitcoin in that it relied on a, well, Digicash in particular relied on a specific cryptographic innovation, which was the invention of blind signatures by David Chom in the late 80s. And he decided to productize it. He created a company, basically allowed individuals to send digital value in a way that granted them genuine anonymity although it required the use of a third party, basically a bank, essentially. And he was a real believer in transactional privacy. And he was very early to this concept. He knew that if you know digitized fiat or digitized cash emerged, it would be used in a rather dystopian way to surveil individuals and control their spending. So he was incredibly prophetic on that basis, way ahead of his time. And he decided to do something about it and created DigiCash, which was, you know, even before the internet was even a com- consumer phenomenon. Digicash was trying to get basically fiat currency onto people's hard drives and onto their operating systems. And you know, Bill Gates wanted to put a copy of the Digicash software on every edition of Windows 95. Mm-hmm. So if things had gone slightly different, history would have been We would have become used to this concept of digitally sending, you know, electronic money way before it subsequently became popular. Yeah,
2: I recently read on Digicash and didn't realize that it was actually integrated in Mosaic. And there were partnerships where like Visa was interested in doing it, Microsoft, ING, and and like just a, basically a string of banks that- They that, got banks yeah, involved, yeah, yeah because was...
0: you, you needed banks for this system to work. So it was right. centralized, right. it did have this central point of failure. Ultimately, it failed, I think more so because there was a corporate entity, which was stewarding the whole process, the startup, and the corporate entity failed, and then the system failed. So you know that was one lesson that I think Satoshi took to heart, which mm-hmm. was- Even had a comment around this. You know, it's the centrally controlled nature of software protocols that doomed them. And you know, DigiCash, the software, the protocol was exposed to the failure of this entity, and also to the fact that you needed banks to steward the system.
2: So it appears that like the the real value proposition of DigiCash was more as like an alternative to surveillance based debit and credit systems more than it was like a store of value or digital cash.
0: Yeah, because it had the same monetary policy as the dollars exactly, in the system. Exactly. And then ultimately it lost out to merchants of the day, like Amazon just ended up using Visa. Yeah, uh, the simplest way I, I like to think
2: about digicash is like you basically withdraw money from your bank account, except for it's just in digital form, right? It's like similar to how you d- withdraw money in at an ATM where you get cash and that cash Is anonymous. There's real no history or trace of you kind of transacting with that cash. David Shahm's attempt was basically to translate that into digital form. Yeah. So it was literally digital. Exactly. So it was literally digital cash. And then ultimately they went bankrupt, right? Is
0: that? Yeah. They went bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some people would say DigiCash is a better example of digital cash than Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is Mm -hmm. because Bitcoin compromises a little bit on the privacy. Would
2: you consider Bitcoin to be digital cash? And also, it'd be interesting if you could actually make this distinction, which I think a lot of people fail to make around the difference between, let's say, digital cash and what people call electronic money.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting debate because I sometimes quibble when people talk about digitizing currencies like the dollar. To be frank, the dollar is is mostly digital. But in my view you know satoshi meant something pretty specific when he said bitcoin was a peer to peer digital electronic cash system right with cash being something which is no one's liability essentially so when you hand a banknote over to your friend i mean i guess it is ultimately you know is it's a liability of the central bank system but you know that transaction is final final settlement has occurred at that point and that's actually one of the great things about cash you know there's no risk of uh, counterparty risk and so bitcoin is modeled to have that same extremely strong kind of property of settlement which when you talk about a, a visa transaction online there's the revocability involved you know you can have credit fraud so to me that's kind of what cash means And digital, you know, exists Mm -hmm. in in digital form. Right, right. And that's an
2: important distinction.
0: It's almost like
2: if you really try to understand the distinction, they're almost exact opposites of each other. Like electronic money is more like this control apparatus where you can basically, it's like almost like a location log of being able to, to track every single transaction. Whereas digital cash is really this system that kind of works independent of the underlying financial system where you can transact without while remaining anonymous, where it is scarce, where it is unique yet reliable, where you can transfer it and transmit without some sort of single point of failure.
0: Yeah. And people sometimes miss when they talk about what the innovation is really with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's innovation is not digitizing value transfer. Mm -hmm. It's you know, because we've had digital representations of value for a long time. Right. Most dollars in our economy are are you know fully fully digital, and it's only a small minority that are actually represented in physical banknote form. Bitcoin's innovation was the creation of a parallel monetary system, entirely distinct from the one that we currently rely on, and allowing final settlement to occur online. Which you know, allowing you to convey value through communications channel with no counterparty risk, basically. So that is what didn't exist before. Got it.
2: So are are there other predecessors like pre-Bitcoin that were kind of forms of crypto or we have the digital cash. I know you've also looked into kind of like the whole stablecoin era that predates Bitcoin and realized like, you know, we've actually had variations of the tethers of the world. If you want to dive into there and and continue to become that self-proclaimed Bitcoin historian that everyone likes to call you.
0: I didn't (laughs) proclaim myself that Oh, you might third be proclaiming party me.
2: third party proclaimed,
0: so people didn't call them stable coins okay. back then. So that word didn't really exist, but yeah. So everything old is new again, basically. So some of the two of the major kind of ideological predecessors to Bitcoin, I would say, were Liberty Reserve and eGold, which mm-hmm. were absolutely fascinating projects in their own right. And eGold, in particular, was begun in I think 1996. It was it became a popular way to send money online before PayPal. Came to prominence on the web. It actually preceded PayPal by about two years. And so, eGold was basically this idea set up by this basically libertarian, you know, kind of monetary theorist, Douglas Jackson, who was an oncologist before that. So, he gave up a career in saving lives in medicine to do this (laughs) because he became just transfixed by the idea. Basically, he wanted to take gold, you know, the nice monetary properties of gold Mm -hmm. and turn them into a digital format. So, Basically, make gold portable and easily transmissible and so on. Turns out, you know, the government had a big problem with this actually. But this basically was a fully backed, gold backed stablecoin essentially. So you would, you know, wire some money into the system, you would get a claim. So where where on, the
2: system reside? Was it just, you'd just go online? Cause you said it started in the yeah, late so 90s or? It, Yeah, it was online. Okay. The
0: okay. gold, I don't exactly remember where it stored. I believed mm. it was in a vault somewhere. Okay. But, you know, this idea sounds very conventional to us today, but it was pretty radical at the time, for sure. So you had a claim on an, you know on some grams of gold, and then you could circulate those IOUs, and it, the system was meant to be, and I believe it was uh, fully reserved, so fully backed. so kind of like a bank of your kind of thing, except instead of being fractionally reserved, it was a full claim on on some gold. and when the Patriot Act was passed, the requirements for money transmitters became much more onerous and came to encompass this class of activity. And eventually, the founder actually, I believe, spent some time in jail or was charged with a misdemeanor or felony because this eGold found product market fit with basically fraudsters, not through any you know, desire of the founders, but that's just the kind of people that wanted to use this not very much KYC settlement mechanism online. This was also the case with Liberty Reserve, which was the same concept, but with dollars backing it instead of gold. And so Liberty Reserve was kind of like a tether analog, if you're familiar with tether. And yeah, if
2: you want to explain
0: the Tether. So, Tether is basically an IOU which represents a claim for some dollars in a bank account which circulates on various blockchains right now, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some others. It's been mired in scandal because the IOUs have not always been credibly backed. So, at times, it's only been backed by 74 cents on the dollar, which people don't like because the promise was that it would be backed. Plus 100%. equity, though. Yeah, plus dubiously backed. Dubiously backed, exactly. Tether <laughs> is basically kind of a crypto euro dollar equivalent, so it lightly regulated, mm-hmm. to put it euphemistically. <laughs> so Liberty Reserve was the same idea, but it was you know created in the early 2000s, and the founders of Liberty Reserve also were you know kind of libertarians. They believed in this notion of monetary systems outside the purview of the state, and they actually did some serious jail time. Because, you know, I guess the Bank Secrecy Act prohibited what they were doing. Interesting. So so like the common thread here is these were centrally controlled systems. There was that counterparty risk ultimately because there was an issuer.
2: In the technological backbone of like the Liberty Reserves and Eagles, what was it based on?
0: Well, nothing too radical technologically. Yeah. You know, these were essentially banks that operated online.
2: All claims were basically beholden to the actual centralized issuer. To the issuer, yeah. which
0: was the problem, right. really. And right. not until Satoshi came along was this problem solved, basically.
2: And then until the ultimate demise of both was just crackdown on Data from regulation. a regulatory standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: in both cases. So Bitcoin was able to escape this fate because in Bitcoin, there was no single issuer. The coins in Bitcoin are issued by Satoshi's had the majority of, of hash power, so miners collectively issue coins and then they also collectively order transactions in a way that ensures that the system kind of works as intended. So Bitcoin avoids this by kind of aiming to be radically decentralized you know, not just at the node layer and the architectural layer, but even at kind of the governance layer too. Like it's it's relatively difficult to even make abrupt changes to Bitcoin. I'm not going to claim that it's perfectly decentralized, of course, but it's sufficiently decentralized so far that it's avoided this kind of key man risk, you know, the the ability for the government to raid the offices of someone somewhere and shut the system down.
2: And so since we've seen almost the copy paste of these models now. And like just a wave of new stablecoins. Like, is the fate of these new stablecoins the same? I mean, I know that there's been a lot of traction around different variations of stablecoins. You have kind of algorithmic stablecoins. You have these fully backed or dubiously backed stablecoins. You have the USDCs of the world who are attempting to be regulated. What's your take on like the current kind of stablecoin usage post? Bitcoin and ultimately post-eGold and Liberty Reserve.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to see this relatively old idea, you know, resurrected. If you think about it, it's interesting because Liberty Reserve, I think existed until something like 2013, so it overlapped with Bitcoin. Oh, wow, okay. And you can go back and look at some of the online discussion and, you know, if you ran a business online and you needed cross-jurisdictional payments which settled with You know, uh, limited or no counterparty risk, and you were, for whatever reason, you were frozen out of the traditional financial system. You kind of had an option at that point. You could use Liberty Reserve, which was still functioning, or you could use Bitcoin. And people were like, well, why on earth would I want to use this volatile thing, Bitcoin? I don't want any exposure to exchange risk, so I'll use Liberty Reserve. So you can actually go back and look at some of these conversations, which was absolutely fascinating. I believe even Ross Albrecht, who was the founder of the Silk Road, posted about this. So did
2: Liberty Reserve have like an analogous Bitcoin talk forum? Where people are just uh, they might have it. done,
0: yeah, but so if you think about it, like it's probably better to have a stable payment if you're using something as a method of payment, a stable you know monetary unit of account as opposed to a volatile one. It's just that the stable ones also required the existence of an issuer and a bank and so on. So Bitcoin kind of outlasted them. But it's always been a very seductive idea to take Fiat, put it in a digital form. You know, you have the nice stability benefits and then kind of untether it from the financial system and make it transmissible with very light or limited regulation. That's a very popular idea that has existed this whole time. Bitcoin kind of derailed that conversation because it was so powerful and, you know, it grew so much and it was so exciting. But there has always been this demand for online transactions in a stable kind of value format. That's one of Bitcoin's unavoidable flaws, which exists due to this trade-off it's made. It is volatile. you know. There's no getting around that. It's probably going to stay volatile for the foreseeable future. That's fine. So stable coins cater to this demand, which is almost distinct from the demand to use Bitcoin in some capacity. And the biggest one is Tether. Tether has a monetary base of about 5 billion. So it's it's quite quite large today.
2: And when you compare that to kind of other rising stable coins, like the USDC, I believe it's what, like half a billion in, Something in like volume that. and then yeah. DAI, which is kind of basically the backbone or provided by a maker, that's like, what, like 100 to $200 million?
0: Yeah. And DAI is interesting. Yeah. It kind of bears dwelling on briefly because mm-hmm. die is not subject to the same issuer risk because okay. uh, DAI is created by creating a basically a basket of liquid assets, chiefly Ethereum, really, and over collateralizing this basket. So for every dollar worth of basket that you create, you get about 67 cents of DAI. And through that, you obtain stability because even if the value of the basket fluctuates a little bit, which it does, you know, in theory, it never declines too quickly as to completely destabilize the system.
2: But but isn't there still like arguably an issuer or administrator, even if it's like that a set of volunteers. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the- Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. would
0: argue that yeah. there effectively is an administrator. There are people that manage this contract. There's a foundation that manages it. Yeah. I mean, you, you could definitely argue that.
2: I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you think DAI is immune to regulatory crackdown?
0: To a much greater degree okay. than the other stable coins. Mm-hmm. However, it's a relatively inefficient way to create stable value. It's capital inefficient because it takes a dollar to make a tether. Or even seventy-four cents to make a tether mm-hmm. takes a dollar to make a USDC because all you're doing is just wrapping right. dollars. It costs, at a minimum, a buck fifty to make one dollar worth of DAI.
2: Not only a buck fifty, but a buck fifty worth of a crypto asset that arguably you're trying to appeal to the less adept at kind of using these systems to begin with. So it's like if you actually want to create DAI, you need to set some sort of collateral. And that collateral itself, you need to know how to access.
0: Yeah, that process is complex. I will note that to be a user of DAI, you don't strictly have to be the creator. That's true. Those can be distinct entities. But ultimately, the kind of conventional fiat-backed stablecoins are Mm. more popular than DAI. Could be the efficiency thing, could be because they're simpler. But so they've grown to be a really, really large and critical part of the crypto economy. For the most part, they exist on Ethereum. So they exist Mm -hmm. as tokens on Ethereum. On the Ethereum blockchain. Interestingly, you know, quite a few analysts have noted this recently. Transactional value in the aggregate of stable coins has eclipsed the value of Ether itself. Ether is the native unit on Ethereum. And so some people are starting to wonder: are they actually replacing Ethereum as the transactional method on the Ethereum blockchain? Uh, so, like, is that cannibalizing it? Is this harming it potentially in some way? Could you argue that that potentially works in favor of Ethereum? It also could do because they are paying fees right. to use the blockchain. But I would say part of the Ethereum thesis was that Ether would be the transactional unit. That if you wanted to create a smart contract, you would have to lock up Ether, thereby driving the scarcity and and potentially value accrual. This sort of interferes with that thesis in a way. So I don't know. It's something to consider in terms of a risk factor, basically the abstraction of the unit of transfer.
2: I've always had a hard time kind of wrapping my head around what I think to be a paradox in what Ether's value proposition is in trying to basically encourage demand via usage versus ultimately becoming like a money where someone has kind of a willingness to hold it as a store of value. So does this kind of conflict with any of those narratives where, I, I mean, I'm noticing in like the Ethereum camp where, you know, a few years ago, the, the same people were saying, you know, Ether doesn't need to be a money for Ether to succeed, are now saying that we need to figure out a way to create this monetary premium for ETH as an asset.
0: Yeah. So the, I would say the narrative definitely had a distinct shift. You know, that's not, what's the word? <laughs> Right. And rightfully so. Like, yeah, it, like
2: yeah I yeah, think yeah, Of course, there,
0: you know, there, there's no crime in the no, no, absolutely in narrative shift. There, uh, there are narrative shifts in Bitcoin for sure.
2: Your visions um, of Bitcoin piece. I mean, that's indicative of yeah. I chronicled well, the narrative yeah, shifts yeah, in Bitcoin. Absolutely, I would
0: say when Ethereum was kind of marketed at inception, it was treated more as a a gasoline to run the the combustion engine of Ethereum. You know, kind of a strained metaphor, or or a computational lubricant to make the system run. And Ether itself wasn't presumed to be a new monetary asset. And this is also reflected in the fact that the supply schedule is, you know, fairly idiosyncratic and has changed many times. So the Ethereum kind of co-founders were not strictly optimizing for Ethereum as a monetary asset in competition with Bitcoin. However, over time there was probably a bit of a dawning realization that probably I would say in part due to the work of John Pfeffer, who wrote a really influential piece, arguing that for these assets to have you know, long-term value, the individuals using them had to treat them like a monetary asset, like a good that they wanted to hoard or hold for a long period of time, which is effectively how Bitcoin is treated. You know, People have a demand to hold the asset for kind of a non-zero period of time. And there was a realization that if Ethereum was just used as this computational gas to service the system, people wouldn't stock up on it in anticipation they would just use it on an ad needed basis. And so then I believe there was a deliberate shift you know, to optimize Ethereum for this kind of ladder usage mode to treat it more as a monetary good.
2: What are your thoughts on Ethereum more broadly? Do you think that I'm curious because you don't really talk about Ethereum that much online publicly? (laughs) And maybe I'm putting you on the spot, which is a good thing. Trap, but this is definitely a trap. Tell me, what will it take for Ethereum to really succeed? What are your thoughts on you know the potential transition into proof of stake? Do you think that the kind of move fast, break things philosophy of Ethereum is to its benefit and what it's trying to accomplish? And I I also want to like get your take on the progressivism of, I would say, blockchains more broadly that aren't Bitcoin? And could that lead to an ultimate demise? Or is that something that is the only way to ultimately outcompete Bitcoin?
0: So first of all, I think that as with monies in sovereign currencies, it's likely that we have a winner takes most situation. Like if you look at you know, the current financial system, something like 70% of it, international trade is denominated in dollars Even when the counterparties aren't, neither of them is the USA. So the dollar has an immense uh, network effect. And you could even say that monies are the ultimate network effect. You know, they're useful because everyone else finds them useful, right? So there's a bit of uh, kind of uh, recursion there. So I happen to think that Bitcoin has an enormous lead from that perspective in terms of financial infrastructure, people knowing about it. Liquidity, of course, the sophistication of financial instruments built on top of it. From all those axes, it has a colossal, colossal need, and I would say it acts as the crypto reserve asset as well. Which I would say it's the the dollar of the crypto financial system. That that can change. You know, the the reserve currency in fiat land has changed many times over history. Uh, right now, it happens to be the dollar. Before that, it was the pound. Before that, maybe it was the franc. I I don't know. Then, in terms of this progressivism idea, so it's very interesting because to to believe that Ethereum has a chance at unseating Bitcoin, most people that believe this tend to believe it for kind of technological reasons. So they would say, well, Ethereum is much more expressive. You can do a lot more with it." And because of that, there would be a wider variety of use cases that develop. And people will just gradually move away from Bitcoin and find more utility on Ethereum. And so then they'll just use it as a Bitcoin substitute. But there's kind of a peril in this idea. So I would call these people crypto progressives in that they kind of like the Protestant Reformation are are rejecting the orthodoxy and they're forging their new way, right? What's to stop a new coin coming along and saying, "Well, well, actually, we are technically distinct from Ethereum. And in fact, you can do even more things. On this coin. So, you know, since you guys abandoned Bitcoin, why not abandon Ethereum too and move over here? And so on and so on. So, there's no natural stopping point to that if you endorse that logic. So, what has to happen for you to move away from Bitcoin and to Ethereum and stop there is at a certain point you have to become a crypto conservative. You have to change your philosophy from being a progressive to saying, well, you know, I, I've actually made my choice now. I like things the way they are. Uh, which we've seen it's, it's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see that with Ethereum. Like yeah. it's this almost this slippery slope where it's like, okay, when do we say no? We can't be doing this. Yeah. Let's just take the next kind of Ethereum killer to do this for us. So ultimately, like I, I think a lot of people like to say this, where you know, to Bitcoin's credit, a lot of the growing pains that that we've seen Bitcoin go through. We're starting to see kind of the second and third in attempts at kind of ultimately s- seeding Bitcoin go through these same growing pains. So, the same kind of narrative shifts, the same priorities in kind of building out this network. And I think like, you know, Ethereum is a great use case for that.
0: So, I distinctly remember, you know, Ethereum's, they used to say, you know, we have much more harmonious and better governance right. than Bitcoin. But of course, that was because the stakes were very low on Ethereum in the early days whereas bitcoin has always been embroiled in these pitched civil wars for the better part of a decade now but then ethereum itself grew up and the governance became much more difficult and contentious which is normal because the stakeholder set grew so just to condense this point basically if you are to move away from bitcoin and you know elect to be a devotee of an alternative like ethereum you have to reject the financial and monetary network effect however then at a certain point you have to say, well, I'm now reendorsing this notion of the network effect because I've chosen to stick with Ethereum. There's no natural stopping point there, and you know we've seen Polkadot and the Cosmos community siphon away some of the crypto progressives that stayed crypto progressives. So the real difficulty in these coins is like retaining a kind of a devoted user base that really believes in them for the long term. And outside of Bitcoin, I don't know if we've really seen that yet.
2: I honestly find this narrative to be so fascinating and I want to touch on that point where what's really interesting to see is we're seeing kind of the same arguments for why Bitcoiners don't think that, let's say like an Ethereum will replace Bitcoin, primarily because of kind of the network effects that Bitcoin presents and that technology alone is not enough of a value proposition to become the ultimate winner. We're seeing these same arguments now that Ethereum is saying about Ethereum killers, where it's like the next smart contract platform, there's no way. Look at Ethereum's network effect, look at the community that it's built, look at all the developer activity, even if you do have a better technology. You can't beat Ethereum because of the network effects that it's been able to build. So it's just a really interesting kind of observation that I've noticed recently.
0: It's quite funny, as my dad would say. He says uh, Ethereum has been hoisted by its own petard. <laughs> exactly, a kind of classic British yeah. Uh, expression. Yeah, but yeah. yeah it, it is interesting to see the narratives come full circle. Yeah.
2: So I want to go back to to stable coins, in particular. Kind of, I want to get your thoughts on Libra as a catalyst for. I would say putting crypto, however you want to define that, on a like for the world to see. Before it was like, okay, Bitcoin is not interesting. Is it not interesting because, you know, it's not a threat, or is it not interesting because we can't control it? Now we're seeing kind of with the rise of Facebook's Libra and and their debates as to whether or not this is actually going to play out, but we're seeing kind of this recognition from Uh, more credible monetary authorities in their attempt to no longer dismiss this. So kind of working groups around the world. And I wanted to basically just tie this back to the stablecoin discussion that we had of like, you know, what do you think the ultimate kind of stablecoin winner is? And how do you kind of see that space playing out?
0: So on Libra, I would say Bitcoin was a Trojan horse invading, you know, the cathedral of monetary authority of the state. Libra was a gigantic battering ram, which made no, no attempt to be subtle or secretive. We just It just to- went and started ramming on the city gate. We're here to take your money
2: and make it our own. Yeah. So the
0: purpose behind Libra, as far yeah. as I can tell, is to be a private, you know, although it's a consortium, I guess, but really a private as in a non-state issuer of a new unit of account, a new currency, and to take the seniorage rights that governments typically enjoy as the issuers of currency and seize that for themselves. So it was kind of a breathtakingly ambitious idea. Unfortunately, I think, you know, they might have got the timing a little wrong, or maybe, you know, governments would have never agreed to it. But you know, by the time Libra came around, governments were already all kind of accustomed or or kind of wary of cryptocurrencies as potentially eroding their monetary privilege to some degree. You know, especially countries with capital controls that might have already banned Bitcoin. And They kind of realized what Libra was doing. They they weren't just creating a payments network as was claimed, but they were creating their own monetary institution. They were creating a basket of sovereign currencies and creating a new unit of account based on that, that users would, they would be able to circulate those IOUs.
2: Very similar to like an SDR structure that we see or like a money market fund. Money market fund,
0: for sure. What's interesting is that their
2: attempt was, I would argue, to mask it by saying that, you know, we want to work with these fiat sovereign currencies we're not here to usurp them we're here to actually you know provide a greater access to them and so you know the usd is going to be kind of our, our largest quote unquote holding in this basket of reserves interestingly leaving out the yuan putting in the singapore dollar you know the yen the euro but you know at any time you know, if you kind of extrapolate at what that might look at like you know 5 10 years into the future What's to say, you know, they're not going to, you know, put a little Bitcoin instead of (laughs) some
0: some USD. I choose to believe that that's their master plan. (laughs) That's got to be it. I I liked that they did like a kind of the bachelor style thing with nation states being like, (laughs) oh, like you want to get your currency in the Libra basket? Like maybe if you play your cards right. You might. Kind of thing. (laughs) And it seems to me that given the stiff opposition they got from the US in particular, Mm. they are more inclined. Oh, and Europe for sure. Yeah. Given that Facebook is, you know, a U.S. company, although I guess yeah. there is consortium, it seems to me that the only path forward here is actually just to fill the basket with dollars. Well, I don't know if that's their current plan, but I think that would actually be the best method. That way, they could sell it as a pro-U.S. Right. phenomenon, I, right? In that case, Libra would become a powerful tool for advancing U.S. strategic interests abroad.
2: Then the question becomes, I mean, you're also seeing a lot of pushback from emerging markets where you'd imagine like this would be the most useful, for the most useful people, Libra is basically kind of like an emerging markets tool where, you know, if you don't have access to the U.S. dollar and you have kind of very shady and fickle monetary policy, perhaps having some sort of digital representation that you... Basically, have ownership of in the form of a digital dollar that might add a lot of value, but we're seeing a lot of pushback there. Like, you know, India recently came out and said, you know, there's no way we're having Facebook Libra. I believe Colombia said the same thing. So it's like, how do you see this playing out between? Yes, this might be in the interest of the U.S. if Libra ends up doing 100% USD reserves, and like uh, whether or not this is actually going to successfully be adopted in the markets that need them the most.
0: Yeah. I mean, Bitcoiners like to trash the US dollar and the Federal Reserve. The dollar is way more stable and depreciates far less than virtually every other sovereign currency. So, you know, the only reason that the dollar hasn't dollarized every country on earth or every kind of smaller country with maybe a less uh, sophisticated, you know, central bank, Or just generally uh, less ability to retain monetary discretion. The only reason that hasn't happened is because states exert local monopoly over currency, right? right? So they, by law, insist that their citizens and their corporations and firms use their local currency, often to the detriment of their own citizens, right? Because many countries have inflation rates in the double digits, right? we don't have to name them. There's plenty.
2: I mean, I, th- I think this is a, a great seg to another one of your obsessions, which is exactly that, the, the dollarization in emerging markets, where we're kind of seeing this bottom-up grassroots movements of people basically transacting and exchanging goods and services for a dollar. So if you want to unpack kind of the, perhaps the history of the dollarization in kind of these emerging markets and the implications there.
0: Yeah, and I think if governments didn't have this ability to monetize monopoly rights over currency, dollarization would be much more widespread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in many cases, it massively increases welfare of citizens who have a device to actually have genuine savings. In I know you know many Americans will listen to this and think, well, actually, you know, two percent inflation is horrible, and and it forces Americans to you know play the stock market and so on, which I have sympathy for. But you compare the dollars rate of depreciation with any of these other marginal sovereign currencies, and it's and people overseas in many many countries consider the dollar to be hard money, right? So we've had some of these historical dollarization events, and interestingly, people sometimes think of dollarization as a top down phenomenon where the government declares the dollar to be a monetary standard in order to arrest you know hyperinflation, which is what happened in Zimbabwe. It was a top down phenomenon. But there are case studies, there are examples in history where it's a bottom-up phenomenon, where collectively the citizenry, they allocated their assets, You know, they f- flowed out of the local sovereign currency into dollars. They had to get their hands on dollars in the first place, which wasn't the easiest thing in a world where dollars came in the form of cash, physical bills. But there have been c- instances where this bottom-up dollarization has occurred, and then the government, the local government has then capitulated and said, "Okay, since now you're actually accelerating the rate of inflation for this for our local currency by you're all selling it and increasing the velocity, which is catastrophic for the value. Okay, we'll capitulate, and you know we'll set dollars as the effective standard. So this happened in Ecuador, for instance. You know, it was a bottom up. So uh, the Economist Larry White he called this the dollarization popular." You know it's a good it's a good Spanish accent I'm not gonna lie that's right. <laughs> so Ecuadorian citizens in response to inflation in the Ecuadorian uh, Sucre I believe, they chose to exit for dollars and this was possible because Ecuador was exporting a lot of oil to the USA. so they had kind of dollar denominated revenues coming in anyway. so there was an availability of dollars locally. And after a while of doing this, this caused the inflation in the Sucre to get worse. And so then Ecuador capitulated and said, okay, fine, dollars are the effective standard. And after that, you know, inflation calmed down a ton because now they're indexed in the monetary policy of the dollar. Growth picked up. The lack of exchange risk meant that foreign direct investment increased because there wasn't a worry that- your capital assets were going to be indexed to some super volatile or inflationary foreign currency, so this actually caused an increase in investment, and people were able to take out long dated mortgages and loans without that uh, duration risk, uh, effectively. So, you know, this really improved Ecuador's uh, outcomes here. Another case where this happened was Cambodia. Cambodia had a dollarization event, which was also bottom up. In the wake of the uh, the Khmer Rouge kind of conflict, the UN had an enormous peace mission to Cambodia, and this brought in a ton of resources, many of which were dollar-denominated, lots of aid and lots of investment, and so this country was suddenly flush with dollars. And this actually caused the citizenry to abandon the local currency and adopt an effective dollar standard. So about 90% of bank deposits in Cambodia are dollar denominated even today.
2: I think that's fascinating. It's particularly your point of like how, you know, the dollarization cases that do work aren't set by the policymakers. It's really like a bottoms up movement. Chosen by the people and
0: then policymakers
2: effectively capitulate.
0: Don't you love it? I mean, they're allocated, <laughs> they're voting with their assets, yeah. and it's a, yeah. kind of a revolutionary movement.
2: Just to provide context, what would the country, particularly like the government's objection to dollarization, be? So why wouldn't they want that in the first
0: place? They lose monetary independence. Right. So there's a this belief in economics mm-hmm. that you can use monetary policy as a lever to control the economy. Of course many Austrian or bi- economists or bitcoiners would say well you don't really gain any meaningful power you can just kind of change things in the short term but you can't you know alter the business cycle or anything but yeah you certainly lose monetary discretion you're totally exposed to what the US Federal Reserve is doing which means that if it loses its mind and and stops being independent and maybe if you know uh, Bernie gets elected and we get you know modern monetary theory then maybe the dollar is actually going to become much more inflationary than it is today, right. uh, and so you know potentially other countries don't want to be exposed to that.
2: I think that's the biggest kind of pushback to your earlier point about you know the U.S. being extremely stable and and seen as the store of value. Certainly it is, and it's likely to be for the foreseeable future. It's
0: relative. It's exactly <laughs> it's one. Relative. It's all
2: relative. I think it's binary in terms of like where the decision making comes from. Right, where it's like some of these countries that previously experienced hyperinflation, you could argue 15 years prior to them experiencing hyperinflation, they had the same arguments of, you know, we're, we're relatively stable, we trust our monetary authorities. But, you know, again, with things like these, I, I find them to be a slippery slope. And so that's it's interesting to, to kind of
0: note out as well. The US has historically had very stable institutions yes. And relative. the of course, world yeah. has had a large capacity to absorb a lot of dollars because there is near endless demand yeah. for dollars. And the U.S. Fed has historically been rather independent. This may be changing.
2: <laughs> Perhaps. We'll see. There's a lot of talk about the dollarization in the Bitcoin community. There's there's talks, and I bring this up sometimes around potential Bitcoinization, where it's the effectively the exact same thing, where there's an argument to be made that you know bitcoin could act as this currency demonetization catalyst precisely citing the reasons that you cited around you know inflation more broadly will cause a loss of monetary like a loss of confidence in monetary authorities you basically have your middle class that converts their savings from the the fiat into some sort of crypto uh, likely bitcoin then businesses effectively demand Bitcoin, like we saw with the dollarization instead of fiat, that obviously is not that doesn't bode well for monetary authorities because of the rise in, in velocity, which effectively further accelerates inflation. And then you have kind of basically your fiat debt load increase massively as a function of this inflation until you're basically unable as a banking service to custody any new assets. And then you fall into this trap of like, OK, there's a parallel economy that has emerged from the bottoms up purely as a function of people demanding something that isn't the local currency. What are your thoughts on that? Because you also mentioned that, you know, access to the U.S. dollar in these emerging markets is difficult just because, you know, not only is it physical, but also there are strict capital controls in a lot of these emerging markets. Do you think that Bitcoin, assuming like independent of its volatility, is there potentially a better chance or is there a more viable option to see kind of this Bitcoinization? Or are we kind of in fairy tale land and thinking that?
0: It does strike me as a little bit of a fable for yeah. now. You know, a lot of people pointed to the high levels of uh, usage of Bitcoin in Venezuela, looking at local Bitcoins data. It turns out that a lot of that was related to Bitcoin as a vector for dollarization. To into USD. Uh, yeah. You know, so with Bitcoin being the pass-through asset, which was useful for, you know, its uh, hard ownership properties, but ultimately as a way to get dollars into the country. So, you know, we haven't seen an example just yet. Anecdotally, Bitcoin seems to be more popular... Uh, Relatively speaking, in countries with high inflation rates. So, you know, Nigeria, places like Iran, you know, you can find evidence showing like, you know, reasonably fair amounts of uptake there. I do happen to think that the thing that has impaired dollarization in the past has been access to dollars. This is why some states have been reluctant to do it because they didn't have a big trading relationship with the US, for instance. The internet has kind of meaningfully changed that, I would say. It's now possible as a resident of, you know, somewhere in the third world, not to use an outdated term, to acquire dollars thanks to internet commerce. You know, like the internet has facilitated this. So, whether it's you know a stablecoin wrapped form of dollars, which absolutely exists in a meaningful sense today, or whether it's uh, you know PayPal dollars or Venmo dollars or bank wires, dollars now circulate globally on a kind of a direct to consumer basis in a less frictional way. Uh, so i think dollarization is actually likely to accelerate in you know various countries with with poor monetary policies as a consequence of the internet now i think stable coins have the potential to really accelerate this in a significant way because remember you know like paypal and venmo you can't use i don't think even you can use venmo outside the us paypal will deplatform you if you mention cuba in the memo field right stable coins for the most part are very lightly regulated now they might fail entirely because at some point FinCEN or the DOJ might just come for the banks that are the the fiat on behalf of these stable coins. That might happen. Right now, the internals of the network in stable coins, they're not being really meaningfully evaluated. So they're not subject to the same level of scrutiny that traditional payments are in the banking sector. It's only the edges of the network that are kind of authenticated. That's where KYC and AML occur. But the internals, those are just on chain transactions. So it's very difficult for the issuer, for the administrator to actually track what's going on. It means they can proliferate and spread more uh, without surveillance. And this is a very desirable quality. The other really nice quality is they have the same quality as Bitcoin. You can really assume genuine kind of physical ownership of the asset you know you can store information for the first time in history in the form of a private key which might even be a 12 word phrase that you just memorize or you write down on a scrap of paper somewhere that's never really been possible you could store a billion dollars worth of tether in a single you know public private key pair so that allows for extremely strong ownership especially in countries where Maybe the banking system doesn't work very well. Maybe it's corrupt. Maybe you have withdrawal limits on your bank deposits like we've seen in Lebanon, for instance. Maybe the banking system is used to extract wealth from savers and siphon it to the government, like we have in uh, Zimbabwe. Maybe the courts can't be trusted to, you know, really fully evaluate legal claims. So in these cases where local institutions are very weak, this is where the cryptographic assurances, Of cryptocurrency, whether that's Bitcoin or it's a dollar denominated stablecoin, they really outcompete kind of the local institutions. Now, there's a lot of frictions involved in using this stuff, but it seems that there's been a demand globally for these kind of untethered, you know, both fiat and kind of Bitcoin denominated assets, which you can truly, you know, provably own and stake your claim to. So, that's a pretty new phenomenon, I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Like, if you look at the predecessors to Bitcoin, this was not present. I mean, you still had a claim that was dependent on a third party that in existence and being benevolent, not deplatforming you.
2: To a certain extent, you still do rely on that with a stable coin. Yeah. Like, you still, to a certain extent, have to trust that, you know, Bitfinex is not going to crap the bed.
0: You know, what's interesting yeah. is what I've heard from traders, yeah. especially in traders in Asia is that they do kind of an informal counterparty assessment and then they actually prefer Tether to something like USDC. USDC is administered by the kind of center consortium, which is Point and Circle. USDC is considered to be more regulatory proximate, which it is, than Tether. Tether is considered to be kind of less regulated. They're not going to go down without a fight kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And the Tether banks are offshore, right? They are, I believe, in the Bahamas, maybe, you know, somewhere- Noble off, Bank uh, and yeah. Yeah, somewhere offshore. So traders actually prefer Tether as this US denominated a- asset because they believe that the issuers of Tether are less likely to just roll over to the government if they come calling.
2: And the lack of KYC AML in Tether as well, I right? I believe
0: there is KYC there, there is, at, okay. at redemption creation, but okay. as I said, the internals of the network are not exactly surveilled.
2: Got it. So what does this mean for the dollar then? Because you have this interesting theory, hashtag unpopular opinion, (laughs) (laughs) that crypto is actually very good for the US dollar. Uh, If you want to unpack that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, if you're listening, you know, Representative Sherman from California, crypto is potentially good for the dollar. (laughs) Heard it here first. So Sherman uh, is infamously an anti-crypto representative. Congressman, yep. And he says, you know... It's been the sole purview of the state to mint currency. How could we let these internet nerds do it? Like, How dare they? I think if you look at the traction that stablecoins have gotten so far, if you notice, all the most popular stablecoins are dollar denominated because they inherit the Fed's monetary policy. Nobody wants a crypto ruble, no disrespect to Russia, okay? You know, nobody wants it. People want dollar. The dollar is considered to be the hardest money, at least as far as sovereign currencies are are concerned. You know, 5 billion worth of tethers exist. Again, think of these things like crypto euro dollars, just kind of less regulated kind of bank deposits that circulate very freely. You know, there's probably about a billion of other stable coins that exist. These things turn over at extremely high rates. So the monetary velocity for tether is about 45. So that means your wow. standard tether will turn over 45 times. Your, your mean tether will turn over 45 times in a year. Compare that to the M2 velocity. What is it, three or yeah. four? Yeah, very low. So that $5 billion monetary base is satisfying hundreds of billions of dollars of transactional value annualized. So this has been the real story of 2019 and 2020. The growth of these stable coins. They're not just being used to move money, to and from exchanges by traders. They're being used commercially, you know, not just for remittances but for large B two B transfers for trade for commerce. That's the big story here. Libra is seeking to take this concept and blow it up by a factor of hundred because they can introduce their you know mostly dollar backed asset to a global consumer base of two and a half billion users. Of course, governments find this to be extremely hostile, as they should. So I don't know if Facebook will be able to pull it off. You think that they launch? If so, when? I think they'll launch. It does seem like the EU would just kind of unequivocally ban them, as would India. And to me, giving retail, you know, Facebook, you know, and Instagram users access to dollars is most relevant and useful in the developing world, you know, places like the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, India if they're banned in those countries, then the thing kind of loses its usefulness. Because in the US, you have tons and tons of payment options. You wouldn't really need Facebook Libra. Right, right. So there would be a bit of a paradox if they ended up banned in all the places where people would actually find them useful.
2: Do you think that if Libra does it right, that it could still potentially be usable even if banned? Yeah, for sure.
0: And keep in mind, this is the greatest prize that exists. This notion of being a private Money issuer. That's why, since Bitcoin was founded in 2009 and actually worked, that blasted the Overton window wide open. So all of a sudden, you had Basis raising 130 million to be an algorithmic stablecoin. That was 130 million seed round of financing. You had EOS it was the best returning crypto asset too, right? <laughs> they gave the money they back. Gave the money back. Yeah, yeah. You had EOS raising four billion dollars in a crowdfunding, which is a full order of magnitude larger than the you know second place crowdfund before that to create a new kind of monetary asset. You know, and then all of a sudden you have firms thinking, well, why can't we get into the currency minting game too? I think this is really a consequence of Bitcoin.
2: Absolutely. I'm not sure
0: what would happen if it hadn't been for Bitcoin.
2: Absolutely. I think the idea of money as a private initiative was really kind of triggered post-Bitcoin. I mean, we've just seen an explosion of attempts at creating forms of money, like everything from, you know, JP Morgan just labeling their US dollar a- account as a cryptocurrency yeah and that, that's really the only like you know similarity between that and Bitcoin to Facebook's Libra to you 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 have Walmart you have a lot of Japanese companies uh, look, yeah look overseas yeah. look at cacao yeah. look uh, at cacao, Lime, cacao, Rakuten. You know?
0: and now we have central banks that are getting fomo and they're like okay well let's create Something similar. Let's create these CBDCs, central bank digital currencies.
2: Right. I mean, China's of the world have really been pressing hard on that. And recently we've seen Japan playing the defensive, saying, we're going to come out with our own CBDC because, you know, we we just want to make sure that China doesn't come out with one first. You have kind of even Russia kind of exploring this potential idea in smaller countries like Tunisia. You had an attempt with Venezuela. It's like just everyone kind of thinking that they they're doing something that will not leave them, you know, hanging. The question is, you know, how many of these are actually going to successfully play out?
0: And we've already seen CBDCs fail. So, right, right. Ecuador, to Ecuador, Ecuador example. Has one, right? yeah. So they started one in 2014 to great fanfare, all of the messaging that we've come to know and love, on, you know, bank the unbanked, we're going to disintermediate financial services and make it cheaper and more efficient for everyone. As it turns out, people trusted the private banks in Ecuador more than they trusted the government with its CBDC. So They created something akin to Tether, which was IOUs circulating on a somewhat dubious claim of having dollars in reserve, not the local currency. Savers chose to not allocate funds to that CBDC because they felt, well, it's actually quite possible that the government defaults on its obligations, which it had done recently. They put their trust in the banks instead because they thought, well, if the banks, you know, become bankrupt or become insolvent, then there's actually recourse. you know, the bank directors are going to, you know, be bankrupt as well, kind of thing. But in the case of the government, there's not that same skin in the game. You just have policymakers. And so nobody adopted Ecuador's CBDC, and they actually dissolved it. It failed. So even if you are the central bank itself, you're not guaranteed to win in this kind of free market for money.
2: You also bring up kind of the idea of payment system as an exclusive value proposition is just insufficient if you're really trying to credibly compete.
0: Yeah. So remember, in Ecuador, the government had a monopoly over mobile payments because they owned the telecoms company and they made it illegal to make any other mobile Mm -hmm. payments. Mm -hmm. That still wasn't enough. Because when you're creating a monetary institution, the credibility is what matters, right. not just the technology. So a lot of these altcoins which are payment focused, they would do well to learn from this. It's not just the technology, it's whether you have a predictable or credible monetary policy, right. whether you know there's anti-fragility, whether there's robustness in the system. And the history of altcoins trying to chase this payments use case has been a history of dismal failure. So, you know, I'm not really optimistic that you can take a technology first approach to the problem. I think you really do have to optimize for institutional credibility.
2: I'll also add one last point. What's really interesting to see, especially post the Libra announcement, is you have all of these kind of regulators and these working groups and these kind of congressional hearings around how we're going to stop Facebook and Libra when kind of Bitcoin is rarely, if at all, ever mentioned in these discussions. And yet you can argue that like the real most legitimate threat is something like Bitcoin. Do you think that's a function of like their, their own ignorance of like, you know, we don't want to really look at Bitcoin because we have like this, this neck to choke? Or is it more like we don't really understand the actual implications of Bitcoin? And even if we did, there's nothing we can do about it. So let's just try to focus on number killing number two.
0: I would describe it as a learned helplessness. So, you know, just recently you had Andrew Yang, Mm -hmm. who was interviewed by Joe Weisenthal in Bloomberg. He said, you couldn't stop Bitcoin if you wanted to. Just today, you had Representative Emmer, Mm -hmm. I believe from the House, saying, paraphrasing, Bitcoin can't exactly be stopped, uh, even if you tried. And he actually recommended that people read this book, The Age of Cryptocurrency by Paul Vigna and Michael Mm -hmm. Casey. I see. This is in a congressional hearing today. So the policymakers that are smart and have done their homework have learned that Bitcoin was configured in such a way as to be nigh unstoppable. As far as we know, it's pretty difficult for anyone to shut it down even a nation state a hegemon like the US with kind of unilateral strategic and military power over the world it seems to be the current consensus in congress that you can't just unilaterally shut down bitcoin and that maybe is enough they're clearly much more focused on these corporate monies like libra so the, it might have been enough
2: all right well interesting to see this play out in real time though i i find we're we're very lucky to have kind of this front row seat on the shifting narratives from the outside view on what the implications of all of this really are. I know that you do have a, a plane to catch to Boston tonight, right? Yeah. But if you have any kind of final thoughts, also, where can we find you on the web?
0: Well, you can find me on Twitter. It's Nick underscore underscore Carter. That's two underscores. Two
2: underscores and, and Nic. see no, no K in the, in the Nick either.
0: The K is redundant. <laughs> Why do you need a K? The C already does a plenty good job. So my firm is Castle Island Ventures. We're a you know, public blockchains focused venture firm. We invest in equity, not the coins. Uh, yeah, CoinMetrics is also a startup. Uh, I'm associated with plenty of economic, free economic data on how blockchains work and and which ones actually have usage.
2: I would also urge every listener to read everything that he's published on Medium as well. You know, over the last few years, he's had some seminal pieces about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more broadly. Uh, this was actually only three of the four current. Nick Carter obsessions that I was able to pull out. What was uh, the last one? The last one was, let's see, seedless mobile wallet setups.
0: Oh yeah. So this <laughs> this resolves a really critical problem, potentially resolves a problem that we have, which is storing value as information because people would lose their seeds. They were write down these words and they would lose it. So hopefully, you know, there are some startups that are- Now, now, now P- this is for
2: Peter Schiff in particular, you know, now Peter Schiff can no longer complain that he forgot his password and can't unlock the Bitcoin that he bought a few years ago. And just now they're just completely lost in, into the abyss.
0: But this leads us to a deeper point, which is Bitcoin was a $100 billion incentive to develop better techniques for storing cryptographic secrets. And now we're seeing it in a user friendly way. And it seems like after a full 11 years of this thing being around, we're finally getting around to better key management techniques.
2: I look forward to seeing how that plays out. Did you mention Zengo as one of them? Yeah, I've been using Zengo. They're quite good. I just recently came across them. I'm going to take a deeper look. In any case, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for stopping by on such short notice. These are always a pleasure. And I imagine this to just be the first of many conversations that we'll be having.
0: Well, thanks so much. I'm f- truly privileged to share a podcast with Elon Musk. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
2: yep, you're amongst a, a group of some of the the smartest guys in the space. So
0: I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners that are also Tesla fans, and vice versa.
2: And vice, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that aren't Tesla fans either.
0: Yeah, I'm. I don't know if I'm a Tesla <laughs> fan. I, if you're listening, Elon, I'm. I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you, Nick.